In a world where one woman locks herself inside a quiet studio and doesn't come out until the podcast is done, welcome to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed, a place you can get connected with Donna and her friends and listen in on some great conversation. Thankfully, unlike the intro you just heard, it's a drama-free zone. You're welcome. Now, as we listen to a bit of music from the amazing Mark Sparrow to lead us in, it's my pleasure to introduce the one, the only, Donna Reed. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mark, the guys that bring in all the sound elements to Spotlight Conversations. How are you doing into 2022 a lot better than 20 and 21? And I appreciate you being a part of the program today. For more about the work I do, go to SpotlightConversations.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Donna Reed VO, on Instagram at Donna Reed VO, also on Instagram at Spotlight Conversations. And today, I'm in Texas with arguably, let's just say Mike Vance, aside from being a writer and a producer and now a new author, is the leading Texas history storyteller. That's fair, right? I, wouldn't you say that? That's a high bar to reach, but... Uh, <laughs> Thanks. You also worked uh, sports radio, talk radio. Um, this love of history, did it start in school or did it come from radio or how did all this? Probably before all of that, my dad really uh, was a, a history lover. And when we'd go on vacation, it was always stopping at uh, some kind of history site. Uh-huh. So I think that's really what got me started. Your current book, Getting Away with Bloody Murder was released by Pelican Publishing back in January. Um, It's based in history, historical fact. Tell us a little bit about the book. It's historic true crime. Okay. And I had done one other historic true crime book called Murder and Mayhem in Houston. And in the course of doing that, I ran across this attorney uh, that was a, a defense attorney. And the more that I was looking for good cases to cover in that book, the more this guy's name was popping up during a time period about 1895 to 1910. And it became apparent pretty quickly that there was a, an entire book just about his cases. Uh-huh. And the deeper that I, I dug, the more amazing some of the stories were. You're like, you've got to be kidding me when you're reading some of this stuff. And he himself turned out to be a really fascinating story. So I set all of those aside with the exception of one that was in the first book. There's an even bigger book that I ended up with about uh, J.B. Brockman. What was it about Brockman that captivated you? He was the Dick DeGaron of his day, the racehorse Haynes, Percy Foreman. And it doesn't have to be held to Texas, but this is a, a defense attorney. He was Perry Mason, ah, basically. Okay. Um, he was certainly, uh, not averse to telling a good story, to stretching the truth a little bit to get his client uh, acquitted and courtroom hijinks. He he reveled in creating some kind of scene in the courtroom, coming up with some novel way to uh, get himself in the newspaper while he was getting his client uh, acquitted. How long did it take you to write the book from start to finish? It was one of those that I I worked on probably for about three years. Um, 
and it, I wasn't doing it, you know, daily. But okay. when I got the chance, I was hanging out at uh, Harris County Archives, at the court clerk's archives, or in one of the nearby counties. Uh, there were a lot of stops to be made and find out if any of the old records had anything about these cases. And a lot of them are, are still there. A lot of them I can still find. Now, this type of storytelling, you have to go back and research. And it ha it's a slow process. It isn't anything you can just do quickly. Exactly. Uh, thankfully, the newspapers, more and more of them are getting digitized. Uh -huh. So you can do more and more research at home as opposed to going to a library and begging them to let you use uh, what in some cases are fragile bound copies of news newsprint that are, are still around. So the, the digitized records help a lot, uh, but there's still a lot of time spent in dusty archives, uh, looking through old books. And in, in some cases with the court records, you know you're the first person in over well over 100 years that has touched those pieces of paper. Now I'm watching your face. I know this is an audio presentation, but I can see your face light up when you, you, you talk about digging in and finding all these facts about um, history. You really love it. It's not oh, work. absolutely. Yeah. And nothing's better than chasing the unexpected rabbit trail. You're looking for something in particular and then something catches your eye and you're thinking, huh, well, I wonder what the story is on that. And you're following that trail a little bit. And every once in a while, when you're going through these old files, you run across something very unexpected. There was uh, one of the murder, well, multiple murder cases mm -hmm. revolved around this one guy that uh, Brockman defended early in his career, a guy named Sid Preacher, who was uh, had a, a teenage gang and was a, a very young crime boss, in, in a sense, uh -huh. uh, in Houston and surrounding places. And in going through one of the old files, uh, court files, I found his death announcement. Huh. Um, a little printed card that his family had sent out when Sid Preacher got killed, 1901, and it's tucked away inside uh, one of these court cases. So you can imagine that there was a court clerk in 1901 that was doing some work and found this little card of interest and kind of slipped it into the, the court files. I see from your bio, you did radio, stand-up comedy. Go ahead. I, I think all writing is, to do it effectively, you're looking for the perfect phrasing. And I think all of that is an attention to detail, picking the right word, putting them in the right order, and not using too many of them. You don't have a lot of time. Well, and especially with comedy, you're trying to get a laugh. So the, the fewer words, the better. Comedy teaches a lot of lessons. When you're writing comedy, there's a lot of lessons that spill over into other kinds of writing. Now, where did you do comedy, stand-up comedy in Houston? Uh, all over. I, I started out uh, actually in Austin during uh, college mm -hmm. and would come back to Houston on the weekends and do gigs. And this is at a time before comedy clubs, the only comedy clubs in the country were in New York and Los Angeles. Houston got one in the late 1970s, about the same time as comedy clubs were starting out in uh, San Francisco, I guess it had something. But as far as a really dedicated comedy club, San Francisco, Houston, Chicago, Boston, uh, 
started up about the same time frame. And then from there, more and more cities got clubs. And before long, there was a, a circuit. So you're you're going to different bookers. Uh, I've worked all over the country and in some foreign countries uh, as long as they were English speaking. Um, so I did that for about 16 years for a living. Did you do stand up while you did radio? Yes, some. It was it was tough. But every once in a while, I would take a, a gig <laughs> and do radio remotely. Uh, I remember in some cases, it was we didn't have the luxury of Skype and Zoom and right. all of those things mm -hmm. where you could join in the afternoon and do a show that night. Uh, I remember in some cases standing at a payphone and calling in to the radio station so <laughs> I could be on the air for half an hour and uh, still get paid. It's kind of exciting, but yeah, nothing like it is now. There was there was one time in particular I was doing something in uh, Jefferson, Texas, and I was at the time doing an afternoon drive show in Houston. Where were you working? Excuse me. Where were you working in Houston? In Houston, 97 Talk was the name ah. of the station. A group of people that decided we needed a moderate uh, talk radio show uh, in Houston to combat everything on the other side. And uh, that lasted probably about two and a half, uh, three years. That's a good Until run. they got an enormous offer from uh, Clear Channel to buy the uh, signal. Mm. That was the end of their crusade, I think, when the big check came in. But, but I didn't mean to interrupt, but go ahead with your story before that. Yeah, you well, were... so I'm, I'm calling from a payphone. That was my plan uh, at a certain time. And we're staying out in the country. And I went to leave, and there was a peacock that would not let us leave. He's trying to attack me as I'm leaving the, uh, leaving the little cottage that I'm staying in. Uh -huh. So I was delayed called in and my radio partner Roger Gray at the time goes uh, so what kept you well a, a peacock <laughs> had kept me in like hold up in the in the cottage there it, it wasn't an NBC affiliate or anything like it that. was not oh it right. was not just this wanted was to just a very angry bird is what <laughs> that was. so you leave radio you leave stand-up comedy to do writing I was always doing writing all along, um, wrote a bunch of scripts. I had a, a mm. writing partner for a script work and we sold some things um, like anything else. There are some twists and turns that are unexpected in that as well. Uh, I had an agent that was trying to sell a lot of our work. And after 9-11, uh, the agent quit to go be a correspondent in Afghanistan. We did sell some things, uh, sold some scripts to uh, the BBC as well as uh, American television. Um, enjoyed that a lot. Did some TV work in there as well. And just always, it all comes back to, like you said, back to writing, uh, being able to do something creative. Your, your current book, Getting Away with Bloody Murder, how did you go to your, your agent to get it published? This is my eighth book. This It's a, a interesting thing. I'm actually glad you asked that so I can make a shameless plug. <laughs> you can, I won't say easily, none of it's an easy process, but mm -hmm. with a history book, there are publishers that you can go to directly as the author. And I have been fortunate enough to have history books published by multiple different publishers. 
Uh, Pelican is actually owned now by Arcadia History Press, and I've had um, previous books that were done by that publisher, so that was an easy one to go back and approach. But fiction's a different animal, and I had been working on a novel that's a historical novel for years and completed that not long ago, but that one, to get a good publisher for fiction, you have to have an agent. And I don't have an agent anymore. I, I haven't had an agent since we quit doing script writing. So wow. I'm now back, even though I have eight books under my belt, I now have to get this ninth one done, which is my first novel, I need to find an agent. So they can go out and, and rep it to uh, the big publishers. How hard is that? I knew in voiceover, you do voiceover work too. Having an agent, yes. it's hard, you know, to get one in it's your It's very tough uh, mm -hmm. to find a, a literary agent right now because they follow trends. They want to be able to sell the things that their clients bring to them. And right now, it is a much better time to be a female author than a male author. Um, the book that I've written is probably pointed toward a male audience in a major way, mm -hmm. but not exclusively. I, I know personally, I have a couple of friends that write fiction under a female name just so they can have a better chance of getting it published. Really? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic. But, and uh, why do you think? The big publishing houses are at the moment convinced that that's what people want to read. They're convinced that uh, only women read, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that men don't. Really? Um, there are exceptions to, to that, but I need the right agent that's going to be able to go out and make my case and be able to exploit those exceptions. Do, does one usually publish a book and then find an agent? Don't you usually have an agent first and then publish the book? Or Yeah, yeah. which is why the, my fiction right now, uh, that novel... I've had three people read it, and they were the ones that I had sent it to to make comments. Oh. Uh, and that's it. Otherwise, it's it's just living living here at the house with me. So how are you doing this every day? I mean, do you, are you picking up the phone and going, hey, can you rep me? Hey, can you rep me? Going on podcast and begging. That's my... Uh, <laughs> He's begging, folks. He needs yeah, an agent. That's my, my main business plan at the moment. <laughs> Before, we'll talk more about your book and some other writings you've had, um, and we'll talk about PBS Houston, too. But um, what is your approach to getting an agent? It's it's kind of cold calling. I've talked to uh, a couple of my fellow author friends, and two of them have said, talk to my person, see if you have any luck, which I did. And they, one of them didn't rep that kind of uh, well, one of them had gotten out of repping fiction for exactly the reasons that I was describing. They mm. used to do both fiction and nonfiction, and now they're exclusively nonfiction because it's too hard to sell some of the fiction. Um, then I had one in one of those you just want to bang your head against the wall uh, <laughs> where I, I talked to a friend of mine, and he goes, man, I, I really would love to hook you up with my agent, but he just died. Oh, really? They even so say that? I mean, He come had on. gone to a different agent that was brand new to him, and he wasn't able to pass me along because he had no relationship established with this, the new agent. You'll find an agent. I just feel it. I, I feel it. Maybe just listening to Spotlight Conversations, the podcast, 
people will come knocking at your door. It's a good book. It's, like I said, historical fiction. Um, it's a fictional memoir. And there's a, a through line, through storyline, of course. Uh -huh. But it's also utilizing the comedy background. Um, I wanted to make this one of the funniest books that anybody had ever read, in addition to the, the history and the story. When you first started writing, um, did it come easy to you? It did. Um, I, all through school, I remember in, I guess, ninth grade, I, for whatever reason, decided to write a little booklet, is what it amounted to, that was a comedy take on Greek mythology, which we were studying at the time. Junior high, and high school? High school, ninth okay. grade, uh, freshman in high school. And my teacher at the time, Gloria Reinheimer, and Mrs. Reinheimer would use that book in class for apparently several years afterwards to show people one of my previous students wrote this. Oh. She thought it was, of course, hysterical. And one of my cousins came along after me and got Mrs. Reinheimer and said it was just miserable when she found out that... <laughs> that she, she was my cousin. Oh. And I'm like, well, why don't why aren't you writing little books? For yeah, my... exactly. But isn't it that one teacher that makes the difference? And you only wish you could reach out to them and tell them years later, thank you. Absolutely. There are probably three teachers that I had over the course of, of schooling, English teachers all, that uh, made a difference, absolutely. The only other historic true crime I had done was that murder and mayhem in Houston book uh, co-wrote that with a buddy of mine John Nova Lomax and it was a collection of Houston murder cases uh, starting in the earliest one was 1840 and the latest one we did was 1994 uh, Lomax did most of the later stuff I contributed to a couple of those everything before World War II was was me mm -hmm. and it was something new to me. It was still writing history, but the true crime part of it was new to me. The first time I ever went out and spoke about that one, I'm used to having written about Houston baseball history or mm -hmm. uh, other aspects, you know, real obscure right. <laughs> aspects of yeah. Texas history. Mm -hmm. uh, the first time I ever did a, a talk on this, uh, the murder book, there were 90 people that showed up which is about three times what a, a good crowd was for a history talk. Exactly. And the people that had brought me in, they're like, well, we need to get you here all the time. Well, it's not me, it's murder. These people like murder stories. They want to Absolutely. know why. Absolutely, so the, the, yeah, the true crime, people apparently just, uh, just eat that up. And it, to be honest, they're fun stories to research and, and you know, they're, they're never boring. The research is just, can be relentless though. Yep, a lot of note-taking, and uh, you have to, like anything else, you have to, when you're working on history, hope that the records are there. But in the case of true crime, you're dealing with things like courthouse fires that burned up all the records all right. for a given county. Um, so there, there are a lot of potential pitfalls where you get to something that you want to write about, and there's just not enough information there to do so. I'm talking with Mike Vance, producer, writer, historian. He's written a book called Getting Away with Bloody Murder, released by Pelican Publishing in January. Um, one of the best history storytellers in Texas. Yes, you can live up to that. That's a, that's a great 
way to describe you because you do have these storytelling chops down. Well, they're, they're history. That's all it is. It is. is stories. And when people come up and they say, you know, I hated history in school where you, you had a bad history teacher. See, you know, if somebody's the sitting there going, what you need to know about George Washington is he was born in 1732. Well, no, that's not what you need to know about George Washington. You need to understand what he was as a person and yeah, what he true. did yeah. and context to what he did. Exactly. No, that's it. Um, and you're lucky you had teachers like that because... They inspired your love of writing. They did, and I've always loved to read as well, and that goes back to my parents also. They were uh, very good about reading to me and handing me books, and good. it stuck. Good. President Knight Heron Media, Executive Director of Brenham Heritage Museum. Tell me about the latter, the Heritage Museum. The Brenham Heritage Museum, that's a fun job that I'm doing right now. Um, I took this on starting as a history consultant and have ended up being the executive director while they are in the process of creating an entirely new museum. Uh, it's a historic building, uh, an old post office that was built in 1916, 1917 wow. in downtown Brenham. And it has been, it's in the process of being completely renovated um, back to its original glory and the exhibits inside will be done from scratch. Now, for somebody that's not from Texas, how far is Houston from Brenham? An hour, Okay. Uh, depending on where you live. If oh. you live in Clear Lake, it's an hour and 40 minutes. Um, but Brenham is a little bit closer to Houston than it is to Austin, right on 290. And But they like to say halfway between Houston and Austin, and that's more or less true. Now, describing this post office, they've modernized it a little bit, but sort of made it look like it was originally. It's it's going back to, if somebody had, had been there in 1916, mm -hmm. they could walk into this building and recognize it all. Uh, not with the original postal furnishings in there, okay. uh, but as far as the building goes, it's going back to what it looked like then. Uh, with all modern conveniences, of course. The building had no air conditioning. Um, it, it was a coal-fired boiler that uh, was uh, heating the place, so those are gone, but thankfully. But the building itself, is it's glorious. Uh, it has these wonderful large windows that uh, still work. They still have the original oh. window chain on them, oh. and you can still lower them and, and bring them back up. Yeah, just like when the place first opened, and the the woods in great shape. Uh, it was federal government, so they they spent some money. This was their their hold on the town of Brenham and on Washington County, so they wanted it to be a, a showplace in downtown, and it's held up. Uh, what's the website for them? Uh, BrenhamHeritageMuseum.org. Right. Um, you're also president of Night Heron Media. Yes. Tell me about that. I, that there was a previous nonprofit that I had. Night Heron is a nonprofit, and we started out uh, just producing videos, uh, documentaries, short films, all Texas history, and we still do that. And in addition to that, uh, Night Heron now publishes books. There, uh, that's a, a new thing that we've just started out. 
uh, Night Heron, which is nightheronmedia.org, uh, like the bird, Night Heron. The, uh, the video side of it is something that I really enjoy. And it's, it's like writing a book, but with a lot more pictures. And we did a, a big series that was on PBS uh, in Houston and a couple of other Texas markets uh, called the Birth of Texas series that yes. started with Texas Indians and the Spanish and went all the way up to statehood. We're actually still trying to finish the eighth of eight episodes in that. Uh, they're all feature-length films, so when it's done, it'll be over 20 hours of Texas history documentary that we uh, have there. And there's some other projects that uh, are in various stages of completion as well. Can anybody see some of these um, works on PBS, Houston? I don't know that there's a plan to run them again. When we get the funding to finish the last one, then we're going to go back and shop all eight of them as a completed set. Mm-hmm. And there's enough interest, I think, in Texas history that that might even get some interest outside of Texas. Uh, we'll see. But there are certainly enough PBS stations in the state of Texas that hopefully we can get them to run all of these and serialize them over a, a certain given time. Got another book in the works? I have a couple that are the, the novel I already talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a little book that I have that should be out later in 2022 that's about Brenham that grew out of the work that I'm doing at the museum. There's a book that I have that's finished that is uh, ready to uh, to go out to press as soon as we can find the money. Night Heron wants to publish this one, so we have to find somebody to underwrite it. But it's a history of Harris County education. Uh, it's a oh, wow. big 500-pager with a lot of pictures. And... Then I have uh, another novel that I'm in the stages of starting that is uh, another historical fiction piece that's set in uh, China during World War II. And I'm already kind of thinking about another another uh, historic true crime thing, too, but I haven't gotten underway with that. Do you write every single day? You've got so many things going on. Some I, I do. And okay. the museum is keeping me somewhat busy but i always work every day if i if i'm not working then i feel like i'm something's wrong um <laughs> you know occasionally i'll go on vacation and make sure i do not take a computer with me or or Good. anything so those are the exceptions but if i'm at home and it's saturday or sunday then yeah i can always slip in 6 hours of work and, and write on different things. The the key for me is to have multiple projects going. Yeah. And that way you, if you get a little bit stale about one of them and nothing's flowing, just switch over and work on something else. So someone wants to read your new book. How do they get it? The best way, as far as I'm concerned, meaning the way that I get more money, is to go to my website, which is mikevancewriter.com or MikeVanceHistory.com. They both take you to the same place, and you can buy it there. But uh, otherwise, bookstores uh, around the area have it. Uh, Amazon has it. Um, Barnes & Noble, I think, has it. So it's it's readily available. I thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about your book. And you love books and you love writing. And I we're, do. We're going to get you an agent. I, that I'm all for. Thanks so much for having me. 
You've been listening to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed. Subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts or your favorite platform. Thanks for tuning in.